before we get started, I just want to make a reminder to everybody that the information uh, discussed today is not to be interpreted or construed as investment advice. Everyone's financial situation, goals, and objectives are different. Please consult investment advice. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 11. Uh, as always, uh, we're accompanied by, uh, in Portugal, uh, Portugal's finest, Rich Diaz, Acorn Macro Research, the Tom Brady of Macro. Uh, welcome back, Rich. And of course, we've got the turkey man, Papa Keith uh, of Ice Cap Asset Management. Um, welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Hey, guys. We've We've I love got, Rich. Uh, I love I love how today that's you know Steve and I we were in the traditional Santa Claus hats and Rich decides to go with the jester hat. I think it's an elf's hat, but Merry Christmas to you, Keith <laughs> and Steve. <laughs> that's what the they Tom want. Tom Brady of Macro makes me a little nervous. <laughs> He's he's got into his fifteenth Pro Bowl. Pro Bowl, apparently. Yeah, that's pretty um, good. I don't know if I'm Tom Brady Macro, but appreciate the compliment. Happy holidays, everybody. Merry Christmas. Hope yeah, you're enjoying the, the lockdowns. Uh, yeah, enjoy. Let's. Uh, yeah, I think we've got to jump into that because uh, this is the last show before the holidays, and obviously, um, you know, trying to stay apolitical, um, but obviously, we can't help but talk about the the lockdowns in Canada. Uh, because I know Keith was talking about it last show. We've talked about it numerous times. It's not necessarily what you want to happen or what you think government should do. It's how will they react when you have rising case counts. And it was very predictable that uh, Canada's back into rolling lockdowns pretty much across the country. Uh, here in BC, a couple of days ago, they just announced like closure of bars uh gyms are now closed until mid-january um 50 capacity for all sporting events indoor gatherings are maxed out to 10 people and you can't i don't know it's confusing um but i have a question for you which i think i'll, I'll sort of steer towards rich because i think we want to get an angle now of okay this is kind of happening in canada how is this going to impact, you know, economic growth here moving forward? This is a huge setback. Of course, we've got the money printers turned back on. We had like Trudeau coming out and saying, don't worry, the funds are coming. Jagmeet Singh of the NDP saying, oh my gosh, you guys, you got to get the, the stimulus out the door. Um, so this is all going to impact the macro landscape. Um, so, I mean, Rich, first and foremost, kind of curious to hear your thoughts because we actually just had a release uh, Canada's GDP today. I mean, I don't even know what it came in at, but does it even matter? At this year point? on year. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if you have a, an opinion here moving forward, um, what, what your outlook is, because obviously this is going to impact, you know, potentially, uh, you know, future moves from the bank of Canada. So let's, I think there's three things there. One is does do stoppages hurt growth? It's impossible to say otherwise. Um, two on the near term stuff, you know, is month to month, quarter to quarter, are we going to have a significant drawdown sort of in our economic activity? I think for some sectors, a hundred percent sure. Um, keep in mind that not every sector is, you know, impacted equally, but I think in aggregate, you know, for the real estate industry, we'll probably have another massive leg up, Steve, you're, you're going to let us know later. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But you know, the way Canada sort of sets it out is, 
you know, those goods producing and service producing industries. So just to give you a rundown for people who may or may not know, a good producing industry is agriculture, mining, construction, manufacturing, et cetera. And then there's service producing industries. So there's what are the service producing industries? There's, um, I'm just reading the list here, so I don't miss anything, but healthcare, arts, uh, management of companies, real estate, finance, insurance, retail trade. And I think that there's, there's, there's two ways to look at it. One is to say, you know, obviously lockdowns are bad. Um, and obviously lockdowns are bad for growth, but I think there's some industries that fundamentally, um, just won't be affected by it. So construction, it's, you know, frankly, there's probably a lot of holidays for lots of construction workers right now. And I think in a, in a weird way, if you were ever going to lock down an economy, doing it over a Christmas holiday and the new year might actually be one of the more benign times to, um, lock down an economy. So, you know, that's on the sort of the positive end of that. But then on the other side of it, you know, in some service industries, like obviously, um, you know, like restaurants, the arts, um, retail trade. I mean, some of the, some companies um, have their almost, they sell a quarter of all their revenue is sold in the, like, the run up to and including Christmas. So to suggest that these people who are, you know, you know, people are told to stay home, not go out, not spend on, on restaurants and stuff like that. I mean, those industries, which employ, by the way, a huge amount of people and obviously are on the lower end of the income scale, we're going to get absolutely caved in. Um, you know, if you're, you know, up or if you're a white collar worker, you've probably been working from home for a long, long time. And you're probably not really affected by this. If you're a blue collar worker, um, you're going to get absolutely hosed. Um, this was a real opportunity to sort of recoup some of the income that you may or may not have lost. Um, and I also, then the final thing is, I'm not sure that, you know, government handouts can, can perpetuate in perpetuity, but ultimately it affects things like, you know, productivity. Um, obviously, and the other thing is there's, um, you have, um, what would you call it? Um, you have, you know, the, the multi, the, when it multiply the, the multiplication factor, the, help me out here boys um the when you you know for multiple. every dollar of spending you have money you multiplier know, money money multiplier sorry sorry so the first you know first bunch of times that they had first bunch of handouts um it was probably very effective you know it probably it's, it was a stop gap at this stage um it's not clear that you have that you know that marginal dollar of extra government handout it's not clear that, that will help anywhere near as much that's sort of my rundown on it keith i don't know if you have anything to add on that I mean, so growth is is going to get weaker on, on a relative basis. Of course, it has to because it was so bad in, in 20 in the first part of 21. What's going to happen now, though, at the Bank of Canada? They know where, you know, that fiscal policy, monetary policy has been a main contributor you know, to this sort of rebound we're having. And it is, as you mentioned, I mean, the multiplier, Rich, it, it is starting to uh, weaken. So it, it is coming off a bit. So what I suspect the Bank of Canada will do, they'll continue to sound hawkish because of the inflation side, but the actual actions that they'll take, I, I think it's going to come right in line with what you know we've been chatting about now for a few weeks, sorry, a few months now, maybe. Um, in that, you know, you know, you might see one, two, three hikes by the Bank of Canada and, and that's it. And then they get stopped out. But, you know, we're going back to another week state. And Chris, Steve, as you were talking about last week, you know, they're on the fiscal side, the government, you know, they're looking to, they want to wrap up more spending again. And as you also discovered, or we've discovered that, you know, nobody knows where the money is coming from on the budget. You know, it, again, it's just such a, 
it, it's just such a poor state of the world that we have right now in that on the public side, there, there, there's no fiscal responsibility anymore. You know, pe- people think money is free. They can just do whatever they want with it. But it's one thing to believe that, hey, you know, rates are low. Let's borrow and do what we want because rates are low. We can do this. But it's a whole nother game or conversation when you start hearing the public sector. Like they're not even aware of where the money comes from. I know maybe maybe we put in a uh, policy that whenever they want to increase spending, you know, they got to knock off, say, a hundred bucks from their salaries. Like let them feel the pinch of doing something because they have no skin in the game. Like you and our three of us, we run a business. We have skin in the game here. Whereas the policymakers don't. What, what were you thinking there, so, Steve? Oh, I got a great little story for you. Cause remember we, we were talking about, uh, I think I was in the show last week, but that I was invited on to the finance committee at the house of commons. Of course they were talking about, I think it was bill C2, which they brought me on because they were trying to pass uh, a $7 billion uh, COVID relief stimulus, like an additional $7 billion. And of course, yeah, I just went on there and said, you know, well, just be careful because, you know, some of the, I think the excesses are showing up in our housing market, for example. Uh, funny enough, that bill actually was passed last week. Uh, <laughs> and I think it was passed at like 4.30 PM. Uh, and as soon as, and then an hour later, as all of the MPs are getting back on their airplanes to go home for the Christmas holidays, uh, Christopher Freeland came out and said, Oh, by the way, uh, we made an error. It's actually not 7 billion. It's 12 billion. Uh, so Merry Christmas and uh, happy new year. Uh, so again, it kind of gets back to your point, right? It's like, well, it's a, that's a 60% increase. Um, I, I mean, I guess a rounding error perhaps, but uh, it just kind of goes to show you, right? There isn't, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of um, prudence. And it's not just prudence. Oh, sorry. I mean, I don't know. I just, again, I kind of made the joke on Twitter that everyone keeps talking about housing market and you can see like all the regulators and the policymakers are like, they're so like out of options. They're just like, we've tried everything, foreign buyers tax, empty homes tax, like nothing's working. Ah, and, uh, you know, now everyone like OSFI even is coming out and saying, we need to build more homes. OSFI, of course, is the Canadian banking regulator. Um, and I said, well, like, does it even matter? Like building more homes is a drop in the bucket if you're not accounting for monetary imprudence, which is the fact that Rich, correct me if I'm wrong, but the data that I'm looking at is over the last, since the start of the pandemic, um, Canada's M2 money supply has grown by 23%. I mean, yeah, that sounds about right. I, I can't remember the exact number. I'll have to look it up, but it sounds about right. It's a lot. It's enormous. I mean, it's so you it's, build it's an incredible, 10, incredible homes. It, it, yeah. What, what difference does it make? It's just like, but that that's what it is, right? Nobody wants to, to face the hard truth, which is, so let's just, all they can say now is like, let's just build more homes and hope it figures itself out. If, if I can, if I can wrap both of your views um, together into a little bow and put it under the tree with a card from you know yours truly, I might say that the issue is really is there's no discussion of the trade-offs that we face, and whether it's a seven billion or twelve billion from one end or the um, you know or the monetary policy that will basically never ever be adequate for the deficits and inflation that we're dealing with. No one wants to have a discussion about trade-offs. And I bring and the reason I, you know, I bring that up is because we're dealing with those trade-offs now with respect to the new COVID lockdown. Um, and again, you know, if you're white, 
you're a relatively wealthy middle-class person and you're, you've been cowed into an incredible amount of fear um, when, by the way, I don't know if you've been paying attention to South Africa, the hospitalizations are down and they're about a month ahead and on and on it goes. It's, there's no discussion of the trade-offs and that's what it is to run a business. That's what it is to be an adult. That's what it is to make tough decisions in our world as to what it is to raise children. I don't have children, but Papa Keith will tell us about that. I mean, you're constantly in a situation where you're being made, you're, you're making trade-offs. And I think that what we in Canada are being constantly faced with is a situation in a world of policymaking and governance where there are never any trade-offs. And, and everything that they do has no negative externality and there's no negative consequence. And I think for Canadian investors, I mean, you know, I, I, I've said it a you know, month ago and I'm going to keep beating the drum. I know this is not, um, I continue to be positive because until people recognize that there are trade-offs, I think risk, risk assets is where this, all this extra cash goes. And for you, Steve, I know you've mentioned the same thing about real estate. They, they just refuse to address, you know, you can build 10,000 homes in a city, in a country, by the way, with 37 million people. It's not going to, you're not addressing the, the real root of the cause. And so I'm, I'm, I don't know if you're super positive or negative on housing, you'll let us know, but. Oh, can I, I'm going to mention go for it quickly. I, I can't say any names. I'm not going to mention who it was, where it came from, but um, I recently went for dinner with someone very high up in one of the banks, and it, it kind of confirmed one of my suspicions, which is that house prices continue to go up. Um, so, by all accounts, wages obviously have not kept up over the last let's just call it the last eighteen months. Uh, so, house prices are up nationally, like. 30% since the pandemic. Um, wages have not really gone up. Residential mortgage credit growth that was somehow running at 10 year highs. Uh, what happened to the mortgage stress test? You know, it wasn't like, what's going on? What, where's the mortgage stress test? I mean, how are all these people qualifying? And again, policy responses, but what this individual told me was that at their institution, um, over, I don't want to say the number, but over 60% of their files get pushed through for variance. So if you're applying for a mortgage, most of them don't pass quote unquote, the traditional stress test, but they push it up for a variance. And I said, well, doesn't that, doesn't that, doesn't, you know, doesn't the OSFI tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, hold on a minute, guys. He goes, no, 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 all of our programs have to get approved by OSFI. So OSFI is basically in one, in one, in one corner, they're saying on to the traditional media, hey, you've got the stress test. It's supposed to buffer the housing market. Yay. Like we're, we're practicing all this prudence. And then behind on behind the curtain, it's like, hey guys, get it out the door. And it's just what it is, right? And that's what I'm saying now that OSFI guys are coming out on the, on the media and the news and saying, hey, yeah, there's more investors in the market, but uh, we just got to build more housing. Like they're just, everyone's just kind of given up. So I think they've given up. I think they're just continue to go with it. And uh, so like, as, as I said well, yeah, before- it's too, I, it's too big now, right? It's just too yeah, big. Like this, yeah, absolutely. You can't, you can't unwind this thing. So now, now think about it now. Now we have really four, like the four headed monster- going here you know the, the bank of canada they said yeah okay lads go nuts buy housing we're not going to stop it 
the feds have said the same thing, you know, yeah, we'll keep, you know, creating deficits and programs on programs. So keep buying, it's going to go. The banks will keep on lending. And then the regulator says, yeah, don't worry, like, just just keep lending. So again, we keep going back to like, this will stop at some point soon, you know, as they say, like the music will stop eventually. Uh, but you know, it, it will be some one of these external events to Canada, you know, that that will trigger it. And, you know, that could happen very soon, maybe next year, next quarter, or I suspect, you know, we're looking at maybe, you know, maybe a year to two years. I mean, that, that's it, because something, we're, we're, we're all on borrowed financing time right now. It just, all it's going to take is one tick higher in other credit spreads or, uh, or, or, or nominal rates on the long end of the curve to do something bad here. But that's Canada, guys. That's where we are. And you know, it just keeps going around and around and around and no, it's only the the guy with the Santa Claus hat and, and the jester hat that are talking about us. Yeah, those are the only serious characters in Canada. They're <laughs> asking the hard <laughs> questions. Hey, Rich, I got a question for you. Um, I'm not going to pretend to be an epide- epide- epidemiologist. Uh-oh. Uh, I don't know if I said that right, but... Um, <sighs> what's the the COVID case counts like? So I just, I always, you know, we were talking about this off air, but like the U S has got, you know, Omicron surge, the UK, which Rich, you were just there, you know, Europe, Australia, like none of them are shutting down, but just, just Canada. I mean, like either we're, either we're we're the smartest country in the world, or like, do we have a bunch of politicians that are just afraid uh, I don't know. Just I'm reminded of the quote, you know, the only thing to fear is fear itself. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm a cynical guy. And I think that people are basically at this point, sort of, they're making their careers off this. And I think that there's two things, just to be clear, you know, you, one can be critical of the, the government policy and not discount the genuine dangers of coronavirus. And I think the problem is anybody who tries to strike a balance between you know, vaccinations are important. You know, we need to fund hospitals. We need to do all these like sensible things. And the other side being, oh, maybe lockdowns don't make any sense. You're perceived as someone who like doesn't care, doesn't believe the science and all that stuff. But I think it's, I think that's, there's a lack of balance in this conversation. I think we're, ha- we're that's happening all over the place, whether it's monetary policy or, or government policy or Corona. And I think that, and, and, the, and your point, Steve, is really, is really, really important. So like, you know, I, I track, I track this and I've shared on Twitter many, many times and I can share it with the viewers today, which is Corona COVID case count. So we're at 11,000, which by the way, is an all time high. Um, and they're at the daily deaths, by the way, are at a seven month low. And this is with a fully vaccinated population of 77. Three things. Number one, cases are a terrible KPI. And why? Because the testing has massively, massively increased. And we don't want to, I don't want to get into this whole Corona debate. I think just what's important is the lack of balance and the lack of honest discussion about um, maybe there's alternative ways to deal with such an issue. And the idea that if anyone disagrees, they're perceived as some kind of Trumpian, you know, um, ne'er dweller. And, and, and in the cases, by the way, which is something that no one's discussed continue to drop. And that's why, because the vaccine works, right? And so, like, people are getting their boosters. Um, and, and so it's it's really kind of a shame that despite all of this, there's been no discussion with respect to, hey, 
what are the negative effects of the lockdown, given what we know about the deaths and the hospitalizations and the case count and stuff. So, you know, I, I know I'm not um, a virologist or an epidemiologist, not a doctor, but I do know I'm good at understanding the human condition. And there's a behavioral finance element about this. You know, there's loads of people who are committed, who spend a lot of political capital driving the bus in a certain direction. And for them, it seems impossible for them to turn around and go, you know what, maybe we overreacted. I mean, I've yet to hear a politician in Canada suggest that. I mean, how, I don't know capture, how, I mean, I don't know how, how much of that is just the Canadian media being captured. Like, does, is anyone willing to veer and ask? I don't know. I mean, Keith, I don't know if you have any comments on that, but. Yeah, I mean, a lot. I mean, so first of all, with, with COVID, uh, you know, people are getting sick. I mean, that's absolutely having, happening. However, what's, what's being missed right now, we're two years into this. And they're not asked, you're not allowed to have the proper conversation about it. Uh, a lot of the media is that they are left leaning and, and they've already taken this a specific slant with it. Um, however, we have to understand and appreciate it, as, as Rich pointed out, and it's very easy to find this, you know, that deaths are not increasing, you know, that the, the death count is low. And, you know, that sounds cold sometimes, but cases are not leading deaths. You know, people are recovering, whether you're vaccinated or not. And it doesn't matter if you're, you believe in the vaccines, you're, you're a non-vaxxer or whatever they, they call uh, someone in that, in that group. We need to have the conversation now that everything we've been doing, it's not working. So for example, here in Nova Scotia right now, you know, the, the case count has gone up. And it, one of the reasons it's gone up is because people love getting tested. People are lined up around the corner, people with no symptoms, no one's feeling sick, and they... They feel like it's, it's their duty. So they're really buying. And that's the Canadian culture. You know, you, you, you support the state and all that. However, more people get tested, more positive cases you'll get and, and, and so forth. But what, what's happening here, guys, it's because people, you know, are testing positive. Now it's, it's creating this environment. Well, if you bumped into that person over there, then you're in close contact but then you met your friend and they're in contact with you. And obviously, like the, the whole city becomes a standstill. So I, I know people know, yeah, Christmas coming up tomorrow. Is it more the next day? Because they, they've been in contact with somebody who tested positive, they're, they're now self-quarantined. I think for four days, they're going to be in, in their house. Like That's their choice. That's what they're doing. They claim they're following the rules and all that stuff. But it's, it's really disrupting not only the economy, but just, just how we do things, you know, as, as humans and in our lifestyle. And if you go to the U.S., it, it's like a split down the middle. You know, you have one side, they're, they're masked up all the time, even outdoors walking down the streets, whereas you go to other parts of the country and, and they're not. So uh, a friend of mine was just down in the Carolinas and he, he couldn't believe it. People are out doing stuff. They're not wearing a mask at the restaurants and, and, and he was telling me the story. He said, like, these guys are crazy. And um, and I don't say, well, I think you're a little crazy too, you know, because you're you're pretty strong on the other few. But that's my point, though. Like, you're, you're not allowed to have that conversation. But, like, you know, I, I love watching football, for example. And every weekend, you know, you see the college football in, in the U.S. There's hundreds of thousands of people getting together watching this stuff. NFL football, the exact same stuff. And I'm expecting any day to see – you know, this COVID alert coming out is saying 
you know, everyone that went to that, you know, Green Bay Packers game, you know, you, you know, they all got sick or something. And, and that's not happening. So my point is that the policymakers need to rethink what they're doing because it, it just isn't working. And the fact that I bring this up now in a podcast and you guys with something, well, like we're considered to be, oh, you, you're not supposed to talk about this or you're in trouble. But I think it's only Canadians like that. I think so, Rich, when you're in London, like, was it a big conversation with, with COVID I mean, or listen, not? Or London, people just not care too much? I think people do care. I think people really do respect the science in London. I think people, it was one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. Um, you know, they take real pride in the fact that AstraZeneca was invented in Oxford and it was, you know, a British-led contingent that really pioneered the vaccine. But I think the, there's a much more healthy acceptance of A, risk, B, reality, and C, that this is not good for humans. You know, like, you know, it's this idea that you have a constant set of paranoia that you're told that the other is evil or damaged or negative. And there's a certain kind of, so that's that that bit In, in England. I mean, everyone's masked on the tube, but people were on the tube. And, you know, and it wasn't the government necessarily that took it upon itself to lock everything down. But people, you know, maybe adjusted their plans. But at the same time, you know, people were outside having pints in the street because you're outside. There's wind, there's air. Do you know what I mean? I'm laughing because the, the idea that governments continue, this idea that there's no scarring, I think that this is something that Canadians really need to recognize. And I think not enough of it, have, is, they're not having enough of a conversation about it, which is there's like an emotional, sociological and Um, political scarring as a function of all this behavior. And instead of saying, hey, wait a second, maybe what the fear that we're inculcating in our population will have some long-term negative impact. Double, you know, I'm all about getting vaccinated. You know, I'm happy my mask when I'm told to. But the idea that you just shut down absolutely everything, let in mind that the cases are falling, hospitalizations are falling. And I just, I find it's, there's no sense that like, and, it's, and again, I just, I think that there's also the other thing we don't talk about anywhere near enough is it's the white collar, blue collar thing. If you're a white collar worker and you can work from home and your stock stocks up and your houses are up, and yeah, of course you're happy to jump on the fear bandwagon. But if you're, you know, a, my, if you're a personal trainer and you get paid by the hour, you know, and you have no say, you have no say, you have no agency. And people say, well, you're going to get served. You're going to get served. People don't, most people who I've met in my life don't want government handouts. That's not, there's no sense of pride there. It, and I think that there's a complete it's a schism that I think will last for a long time. And what, I, don't, I feel at a loss sometimes. One so of my, just, uh, sorry, go ahead. First. Yeah. But I think you just said something real interesting, Rich. I think that we'll, we'll carry into next. You mentioned that like people don't want to rely upon you know, government, you know, to do this or that, you know, we were chatting earlier. I, I think there's a percentage now of, of the Western world anyway, they are moving towards that. You know, people who either got the left, left behind the housing market, the younger, or they finish university or training and they have tens of thousands of dollars in debt and they're, they can't make enough money to make a go at it. So, I mean, so my concern is that, you know, we, we are sort of having this, oh boy, oh yeah, Steve was going to go into that, right? Is that your... 
I just was thinking of a, I was thinking of a joke, but you, you finish. Okay. Did a, was, is it a jester joke? No, it's a, okay. I'll just tell it now. Um, so I think I might butcher this, but, um, it's like, if you're young and you're not a socialist, you don't have a heart. If you're old and you're a socialist, you don't have a brain. Yeah. Winston Churchill, right? Yeah. Is that Winston Churchill? I don't know. Someone's going to come tell us that it wasn't Winston Churchill, but that's, I've been So I was, I was named after, uh, I have two middle names, by the way. So they're, yeah, cool. And, uh, you know, maybe for security uh, identification, we won't push them out, but they're two very popular (laughs) British names over the years and centuries. So, uh, yeah, I got a big, long royalty name and that's in there. And my dad has one of the names as well. Of course, one is Winston, of course, right? Winston Churchill, that carried on to it. Winston but, you Boris. Know, but, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, Francois or something. Um, but, but the other thing that we'll, we'll sort of leave out here with COVID, again, if you're in the data world and you're in the world of science, you know, we now have two years of unbelievable data coming out. Like every day, every week, every month, there's so much information out there. And of course, a lot of it will get, you know, put together and, and spun and spinned around it to tell whatever story you, you're, you're told to tell. Because a lot of people don't realize that, which reminds me of something else as well we got to jump into. But I keep going back to the U.S. I think it's, it's a perfect place or, or market to study this because specifically down in Florida and the Southeast states and Texas, a large part of the population, they're out doing everything as they've done before and lots of vaccinations, all that stuff taking place, but they're not taking nearly the same precautions as what's happening in other parts of America. But yet, and maybe you know the, the data, Rich, how it looks, but it's my understanding the numbers are no worse or no better than the states, you know, we've completely clamped down on things. And I think that's what should drive the conversation. You know, again, like, I just don't think what's well, been happening has been the right way to do it. And now we have data to show that, yeah, you know what, you're right. You know, the Swedes were right, or the Swedes were wrong, or, you know, you could sort of go down that route with it. I think that brings us into the larger, like, macro piece, because uh, just kind of touching on all you guys, what you guys just chatted about, and obviously we don't you know, beat a dead horse here, um, about the virus, but you know, it's, I think there's, there's some frustrations. In fact, like, you know, you guys talked about personal training, like one of my best friends, um, high school friend, ex roommate, uh, he is a, a personal trainer, right? So he just got shut down, like zero income coming in now. Uh, so he looks at that and says, well, I can't do personal training sessions one-on-one even, with people, but you know, you're still technically allowed to have half capacity. So 9,000 fans at the Vancouver Canucks hockey game. I mean, how much sense? So, but I think that this whole, there's like this kind of this frustration brewing you look at the U S and I think that kind of brings us to the larger macro piece, which is, um, the, the fourth turning. And if, if anyone's not familiar about it, uh, there's a book called the, the fourth turning it's written by Neil Howe. He's a demographer. He's now with like Hedgeye on their research team. Um, but it is a very popular book, particularly in the finance space. And basically what it argues or his premise is he went back and studied all these societies over many, many, you know, centuries 
and kind of what he determined was that society tends to go through sort of these seasons um, and these seasons can last 20, 30, 40 years. But what he argues is that you're, we're now going into the developed world is going into what he calls like the fourth turning, which is essentially where things get really bad. People lose faith and trust in your institutions, right? So they, what he argues is basically rip down the existing institutions. Um, there's this, there's this friction and this divide in society and they rip down the sort of the status quo. And then what happens is he ultimately from that sort of rip down, you basically get a rebirth, uh, which is like new institutions, new, new society. And, and you kind of come out of it better on the other end, but it's a very sort of dark and painful place that you have to go through in order to kind of rebirth on the other side. So he argues that we're in the fourth turning. I think if you look at certainly what's happening, I feel like like it was happening before the pandemic, but this pandemic has been the start, this spark where you've seen this huge divide between, you know, the right and the left and, and the, the mistrust of, um, you know, the mainstream media and you've got, now you've got, um, you know, big tech telling you what is they're determining now what is fake news and what isn't fake news. They're, you know, and we've seen this a lot of, a lot of the COVID stuff, like stuff that they were initially taking down and saying, well, this is fake news. You know, five months later, we're finding out, Oh, it was actually true. Um, and so to me, it feels like from a larger macro perspective, I think you can clearly see maybe less so in Canada, but I think you are seeing the, 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 the failing and the loss of trust in our institutions. Uh, I mean, I don't know, Keith, if you have any thoughts. Yeah, I agree with that. I think with Canada, though, I think we're, we're, we're dead last. We're at, we're at the end of the line up here in that I don't think there's, well, there, there is a bit of a distrust or lack of confidence in our policymakers. But I tell you what, buddy boy, the majority of Canadians are in line. That, that's that's what we do. No questions asked. And so what's so what's good about that is that you know you're you're living your day-to-day -day life now and you're probably not experiencing any stress or animosity about things in general. You know, you're you're being told on, you know, buy your house, pay off your debt, which you can't do both, of course. You know, things like that. Whereas elsewhere around the world, it it really is happening, Steve. I, I see it. And then of course I overlay on top of that. And again, we are at this incredible moment in time, a turning point with long-term interest rates. They are absolutely going to surge higher. People say, well, that hasn't happened yet, or it might take another two or three or five years. The long scheme of things, like if it happens within a 10-year period from, say, like five years ago to five years from now, when, when this goes up, it, it, it really does end all these systems that we've been relying on before and that's where we will get a pretty traumatic change in, in how things are done so um you know again canadians we're, we're going to ex i think we're going to be shocked when it happens whereas other parts of the world you know maybe they won't be as shocked because maybe they're driving it but i, I don't think here in canada we're, we're driving that push but what do you see rich or do you see the same so thing? i so i think that there's there's two things there i think um i think the west is a victim of its own success and if you don't mind, I'm going to quote one of uh, people who is one of my personal heroes and just a brilliant writer. His name is Janan Ganesh, and he writes an opinion piece for the FT, the Financial Times in the UK. And he wrote a note, basically, basically sort of an obituary to Bob Dole, but 
And he wrote, to regard anything in public life as inevitable is to succumb to theology. Still, with the passing, passing of Bob Dole and much of his generation, it is hard to avoid the thought that societies grow rasher and more reckless as the memories of the past crisis fade. And basically, you know, I think that, that that's how I feel it. So for me, I would push back on that turning thing because I think my friend laid it out quite well in the sense that, you know, to suggest that these cycles are inevitable, I think, is, is borderlines on theology. And I always push back on anything related to providence and theology. But one thing I do really share with respect to both your guys' points is the complacency, A, that I think we share in Canada and ultimately being the victims of our own success, you know, whether it's the woke stuff or whether it's, you know, this complacency or that complacency, I think people are, you know, life is almost too good, right? There's nothing to complain about. And I think what that breeds is a certain two things. One, you start to forget that if you don't really pay attention to your institutions, if you don't really push back against government overreach, um, that you, you, you inevitably fall into these traps where, which we have seen those cycles. And that's where I'm very sympathetic to the fourth turning. Um, and then as far as the complacency, I think it's, it's incredible, whether it's legal, whether it's political, I mean, the idea that Canada couldn't fall into a more authoritarian, um, an authoritarian trap. I think it's a, it's a classic example, you know, Oh, not, not here. It's not never going to happen here. It's never going to happen here. And we've seen it and to share it back to you, uh, Steve, we've seen it before, right? Um, if you under, if you understand the history of sort of, um, you know, the, the long, the longest century, which is, um, if you ever want to read a really, really good book, his name is uh, Eric Hobsbawm. And he wrote, you know, he wrote age of empire and he called the longest century was the 18th century, sorry, 17th, uh, sorry, 19th century. So 1800. And it ended in world war one, 1914. And it'll tell you that, you know, that schism, World, World War I, was seen to be impossible, right? At the time when it kicked off, no one would believe that could happen, right? You just had an 18th, uh, you had an 18th century that was bloody, you had a 19th century that was bloody and miserable, and by the beginning, by 1910, people had thought, you know, total war had been a thing of the past. And I bring that up because I think that it's just, you know, people are, believe that interest rates can never go up right? There's again, that's that complacency. You know, we, we figured out finance, we figured out this volatility, we figured out this growth. And I think that again, and again, history teaches us that when you don't pay attention to those little details, and you don't work hard to keep those institutions either independent, or, um, you know, hold politicians accountable, or when you mess with markets, consistently for prolonged, sustained time, you eventually you know, you, you get those schisms. And so that's why I think the three of us sort of, even though we come at it from different angles, I think we all sort of share where that might end up. I think that's a good point because uh, one of the questions I kind of have, uh, you know, maybe for, maybe for Keith here, but is people are going to get confused. So they're going to go, okay, we're listening to this show and hold on a minute. You're saying interest rates are, can go up. They're going to go up. Keith's, Keith's saying, hey, you know, this thing's going to blow, rates go up. They're like, well, hold on, didn't you just say a bank account wasn't going to raise rates? Didn't you say we're in this perpetual debt trap, blah, 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 blah. There's going to be some confusion. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I think we probably share a similar view, which is that they're going to try to sort of keep the ball pressed underneath the water 
uh, maybe that's manipulation of, you know, more QE and yield curve controls. They're pushing this ball or holding it under the water. Uh, and eventually it's going to rip pop up and given the, the debt loads, uh, you know, across the world, um, do you see that playing out as like, this is, that's like your great reset, you know, that, uh, everybody keeps talking about, like, are we kind of at the end of this Keynesian, you know, as Ray Dalio calls it the long-term debt super cycle where like you have tried everything and you kind of have like, in my opinion, like what's happening in asset markets looks to me almost like a symptom of just like a fiat currency that is essentially failing. Like it's just being debauched, debased at a, at an unprecedented pace, you know, us money supply since the pandemic's up 30%. Um, is this like the road at the end? And do we get that reset? Like, how do, how do you see that playing out, Keith? Like what, what's your, what's your opinion? Yeah. So, so for, I know, I mean, I'll jump around a lot talking about rates. Uh, <clears throat> most people, when they think about rates, think of the bank of Canada and that's the overnight interest rate. So the cost of borrowing today and you pay it back tomorrow. When I say rates are going to just surge higher that, that those are long-term rates. So like, 10-year borrowings, 20, 30-year, that's where the risk will come in. And, um, and again, the average person may not realize that's happening until after it's happened. And, you know, we, we've, we, I won't go down that road exactly how it looks and, and feels and everything. But in terms of like, you know, we go back to the whole turning point, you know, we're using that, that phrase. We, we are absolutely at the end of Keynesian economics. So people, so here's the story, Keynes economics, after in Bretton Woods, after World War II, you know, all of the allies, they got together in, you know, Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. And um, if you ever get a chance, go to that resort, by the way, it is just, it, it's just thrilling and peaceful. You, you got to go there, hang out It's one of the all time greatest resorts in the world. And uh Mount Washington is behind Killer Mountain. I climbed that guy and man, it 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 knocked me. I was knackered after that one. But what they decided at that at the Bretton Woods conference, they're trying to decide like how do we reset the economy? How do we how do we do this? Because Europe was in shambles, they couldn't pay back debts and, and all that stuff. So they decided on basically this economic policy called Keynesian economics with John Keynes. He was the British economist where they came up with it. And and what he said was, you know what? Governments, central banks can control the economy uh, and what they do with that. And when the economy slows, they can lower interest rates and governments can spend more. And that will help to provide stimulus and things to get back on track. But he also said, hey, when things get back on track, raise rates again. Here's the, here's the big one. Governments have to stop borrowing money. You know, then you, you want a surplus. You know, you try to always you know, reconcile your books all the time after each cycle. So governments have never done that. They've always run these enormous deficits, one bigger than the next. And, you know, to where we are today, you know, 7 billion turned into 12 billion, you know, on a Friday afternoon. Uh, but where the whole Keynesian economic thing has really, you know, come to a dead end was back in 08 and 09, when all the central banks, the lower rates to zero, and then negative because all of a sudden now that they've hit what they call the lower bound, like there's no more rates left to cut. And the closer they got to zero, it's like flying to the sun. All of a sudden there's, you know, you're, you're at that awkward moment where you can't go any higher. You don't want to go lower and, and, and so forth. So there, there's no way now for these guys to, 
they used the economic policy they wanted from back at the Bretton Woods um, conference, you know, going forward. So that's why I say something is going to change. It's going to break and, and snap just as it did back before then. And that was caused by war. I think this one be caused by a financial or economic war. But we have a new system coming up and whether it involves, you know, central bank digital assets or crypto or, you know, currency backed by commodities, it, it's kind of irrelevant because before you get to that, it's, it's going to get, you know, pretty ugly and exciting at the same time, depending if, if you recognize, you know, how this is playing out. But in my mind, this is the most single important thing to understand what, what's happening in markets. We, no one can take on any more debt without rates staying low forever, and they cannot stay low forever. Otherwise, capitalism just doesn't exist. And I know Rich is a socialist. Yeah, no, I just I just want to thank you, Keith, for highlighting. I mean, every Keynes gets a really, really bad rap. And Keith, as a markets guy, you nailed it. The the bit that they always forget is you need to build up the surplus once you've entered it, once you've come in to quote unquote save the economy, you need to go back to, you need to offset it, you need to build those surpluses, raise interest rates. Keynes was not a guy who just wanted to spend with impunity forever and ever and ever. That's never, I mean, if you read any of his treaties, that is not what he said. So thanks so much for pointing that out. I think he gets a bad rap. But as far as the other bit, um, you know, let's quote somebody else, um, Hyman Minsky. And I think that that's maybe the thing that we're all sort of, we're, 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 we're like circling around this, this larger issue. And the idea that, like all stable economies sow the seeds of their own destruction, which is stability breeds instability. You say, Rich, how, why did that make sense? It's because governments, central banks refuse to allow some minor rate reset along the path, right? Um, which will inevitably take the punch out of a much more significant, much meaner, much more politically you know, sketchy reset. And then that's, I think, if I, if I may, and, you know, in one, one little mini sentence, that's the issue. I mean, this is why, you know, people like you, uh, you and I, we always push back on low rates forever. This is why we push back on monetary policy being so easy by governments just spending forever. No one wants to accept the near term pain. And it just breeds the potential for a severe dislocation. However, and as Keith, as you rightly say, who knows how it'll manifest. But that dislocation is coming. Um, so just, I mean, just something that, to add to that, because you because know, again, let's, let's circle back now to the market and the industry. So the way the industry looks at this, they, they don't say, "Oh, wow, rates are too low; they're going to spring up higher at some point." We need to protect, you know, our clients' money. Zero chance that that's coming across in their meeting room. Instead, the way they look at it and they say, "Wow, rates are really low." Uh, Clients, they, they still want a 5 6% yield on their investments with no risk. We can't get that in a regular bond market. What we can, though, is invest in a, a big basket of riskier bonds. But we're going to, instead of calling them junk bonds, we're going to call them high yield. And they go, yeah, they, they slap hands. What an awesome name. High yield is better than, than junk bonds, right? And uh, then they say, hey, why don't we buy... Uh, you know, uh, emerging market bonds as well. You know, we'll call that global bonds, global diversification, you know, all that stuff. So unknowingly, 
Canadian investors, um, they all have bonds of some sort in their mutual fund or something like that or, or pension plan. And because of the end of Keynesian economics, because of this, you know, this turning point that we're looking at coming up, they don't realize that the industry has pushed them square right out in the middle of this, you know, six lane highway. And uh, when they look up, they might think they see two motorcycles coming towards them. They'll stand in the middle and it'll be okay. And they realize <laughs> it ain't two motorcycles, pal. It's, it's a big Mack truck. It's going to run you over. But the industry, like they're, they're not looking to, you know, to preserve client investment portfolios in, in what should be you know, the, the lowest risk part. Instead, they got them pushed way out into the riskiest part of the portfolio. Because I know, Rich, you keep saying, hey, you know, like risky assets should perform better. And I completely agree as well. And because again, like this, like when, when this thing pops, it's, it's, it's going to hurt the people who can't afford to be hurt the most. And that's, exactly right. that's what the challenge is. It, it really is. Let's, Sorry, can I just address Steve? the risky asset thing? Sorry, just one teeny weeny thing and I'll be quiet, but which is when I say that they'll be perform better, I mean, they're both in my premise and what I say to my clients is they're both going to be shit, right? So it's just a relative, at this point, it's a relative game. Sorry, Steve, please. Yeah, but one more well, thing no, about that. But what, yeah, sorry, Steve, but real quickly though, with, with which made a good point, but one part of that, you say, you know, they'll both be shit, but one piece of that will recover, like equities yes. will recover. Right. The other part will have a permanent loss. Yes, exactly. Permanent, that's exactly it's, it's how permanent. It, it doesn't, you don't come back for it. And that's you get why, a haircut and you never get made whole. That's it. Absolutely. Whether it's you're getting paid back 65 cents on the dollar or 35 cents on the dollar, you know, you're, it, it's gone, right? It, it, it's gone. Right, Steve? Yeah, it's, uh, what's that South Park episode? And it's gone. Uh, yeah it's uh anyways um, what a cheerful christmas episode eh, boys <laughs> yeah it's like a remake of the global financial crisis these people go into the bank at south park and they sit down and they go i'd like to pause a hundred dollars and he goes and it's gone next <laughs> um, so we have an ex we have an expression where i grew up and we just i say it all the time and people look at me like what the heck is he saying and but i'll always say and there she was gone yeah <laughs> We're always good for at least one boomer joke. Um, well, have, I have another good one. I have another good one. You know, today's a good day on clothes. What? I don't get it. <laughs> oh, it's a good day on clothes. People, some people who are listening, they might know what that means. If others don't, just there will be at least one person who knows. You have to be, yeah. you you have to be, at, least, you have to be at least seventy-five email. or older to enjoy that joke. My mom, my mom will know what that one means. Yeah, of course. Um, okay, give us some Christmas it? cheer. What, what's the Christmas cheer you have going? For me? Any, oh, what well, a beautiful Christmas day feeding cheer. cows. Uh, um, my uncle owns around 60 cows. He's incredible. 75 years old, jumps in the truck, drives out to each paddock every morning. We, today we were chainsawing down some olive trees um, so they don't get too big and too wide. You know, we, he the Tom Brady of farming. He is the Tom. He is the Tom Brady of farming. I'm not sure if I'm the macro uh, Tom Brady of macro, but he's definitely the Tom Brady of farming, and he's incredible. He looks great. Um, that's what my Christmas cheer for everybody is, man. You use it or lose it. I mean, it's, he's incredible. I, I would put him in the. I'd put him in the octagon against anybody at 75 years old. Well, he's if incredible. you're Canadian and you're not the Tom Brady of of macro, what do we call you? Like the uh, CFL's Dave Dickinson of <laughs> macro. Can't be the Doug. <laughs> What's that? What's, the, the, what's the 
Montreal Alouettes quarterback. Uh, I'm going to be the Dora the Explorer macro. How about that? Can I be that? There you go. Um, well, I think that's probably a, a good place to leave it. I think on a, on a, maybe on a more on a lighter note, just to kind of highlight maybe what we were talking about in terms of the sort of the end of the Keynesian economics, there's no clean balance sheets left anymore. Uh, one of the probably best examples of that is, uh, it was on Twitter is, uh, you can now finance, no joke. You can finance your Domino's pizza. So you don't have to pay $15 for your large pizza. You can finance it over like three months and pay, you know, $2 a month. It's just like, I always find that hilarious, right? Like I always get these, like, you get these like pamphlets in the mail. It's like the brick has this big sale. And it's like, buy your like new TV for like $800 and finance it over six months. I'm like, if you can't afford $800 TV, like cash, I don't think you should be buying a TV, but again, you can finance anything now because that's just like the financialization that we're in. There's everyone's super levered with debt and you can now maybe to the uh, enjoyment of many of our listeners, you can now finance your Domino's pizza. So, um, so, I mean, so we call that vendor financing. And um, so that tells me, and same with these ARC funds that are out there as well, because the way that they're put together and structured, we, we really are at this point where a, a lot of markets, they, they just don't make sense anymore. You know, they, they don't pass, you know, the, the smell test. So, uh, so for those that were around back in 99 and, and 2000 and stuff, uh, a, a lot of those tech companies back then, you know, they had, uh, they're selling a lot of stuff, but it's all vendor financing. So if they were giving their routers and switches away for effectively free with the assurance they would get paid, you know, nine, 12, 15 months later. So when I saw that, you know, Domino was saying, Hey, you can, you can buy a $15 pizza today and pay it back, you know, $2 a week over, you know, 10 weeks or something, you know, it's funny and it's a chuckle, but it's, it also tells me that, Oh, wow. Like this, Something's broken. Tough. Yeah. And then with the whole ARC funds, if, if people are or are not familiar with them, effectively, you know, it's a very good marketing strategy and says, you know, we're going to invest in these, these great technology companies, innovative, they're going to be disruptors and, and all that stuff. And, and they, these companies, they actually are, they, they are doing this stuff. They're doing incredible stuff. Years from now, we will realize, oh, wow, we were using their products and services. We, we didn't even know it. However, the way that these funds are providing liquidity when people redeem is by investing in like the, the big large cap names, you know, like, like the Teslas and, and the apples and, and stuff. So when you have to use liquid equities to provide liquidity in your fund for illiquid equities, that creates a whole lot of trouble. And uh, I, I've seen that firsthand in, in my, in my previous life. Uh, if all of a sudden you get a run on on equities and you got to sell all of your liquid equities to meet redemptions, pretty soon that fund, you know, it's it, it's it, it's it's just full of a whole bunch of these illiquid securities that they can't be priced attractively. And all of a sudden, that's why you see one of these funds. I think I think the main one, what is it, ARKK? I think it is. I think it might be down forty to fifty percent from its from its February high and, and everything. And, uh, you know, it's not to say, remember, we're not giving investment advice, but again, if you make observations that are out there and you, you start connecting the dots, it's easy to see that, you know what, the markets that we just experienced from June of 2020 up till, 
let's say September of, of, of this year, that's, that's not a normal market, guys. You know, that was driven by an incredible amount of, of liquidity gushing into the market and, you know, a one-way street. You know, I think we're sort of on the other side of that there. So, um, yeah, be careful with your pizza purchases. <laughs> by the way, uh, I, make, I make really good pizzas. I'm a very good yeah, amateur. Yeah, by the way, yeah. If you, want, if, you, if you want inspo for your Friday night pizza Sunday uh, follow, night, I thought. Well, I don't know. Keith, follow Keith uh, at Ice Cap. He posts pictures of of him and his uh, sexy apron uh, making pizza. So, um, and so you, don't you guys, to... you guys know Mike Green. You know, you guys know Mike on on Twitter. Yeah, Mike's, Mike's yeah, he's Professor Plum, I think. So, uh, Mike and I are friends, and Mike Mike started keto there, keto diet there a while back. And he sent me this private DM there a few months back. He said, Keith, every time you do these Friday night pizzas, everything you, and you copy me on it, he said, you have to stop it. It's, it's, it's tempting me to go off the, this diet, you know, which, which is important to him and everything. So uh, I'm in Mike's you're, bad book. I mean, his, bad yeah, you're, book. you're, you're a bad friend. Speaking of which, I think maybe at some point we'll have to get Mike green on the show here, but uh, he's a smart, smart guy. So, uh, but I think we'll leave it. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Thank you uh, to everyone here who has been subscribing and following along the podcast. Obviously, it's a, a long journey ahead. We've, we've just begun and uh, we certainly appreciate the support and the traction that we've, we've garnered so far. Um, our one maybe uh, holiday wish and ask of you is that, you know, if you've enjoyed this podcast or if you've enjoyed the, any of these episodes, uh, all we ask is that you share it with at least one friend over the holiday season. Uh, let's get some word of mouth out there and, and let's continue to grow this uh, community here. So as always, uh, we'll see you in the new year.